You can always close your eyes, but you can't close your ears. Hay una cuestión de, yo, yo diría como es de amor a la tierra, ¿no? Es decir que somos parte de las raíces de, 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 de donde nacemos, ¿verdad? Entonces pensando en esto se nos ocurre una canción. Welcome to Disquiet on the Western Front, Voices of the Forest Resistance, Conversations to Cool a Planet on Fire. It is one minute past midnight. Is it too late? For our children's and all the critters' sake, I hope not. I am Chad Swimmer, coming at you from the unceded territory of the northern Pomo and coast Yuki. We are listening to Macaco from España, Madre Tierra. Stay tuned for dispatches and the opinions and lives of direct activists, Slug, Badger, Silver Fox, and others. Pero ahora, música. Pues si no puedo bailar, no quiero nada de tu revolución. Salam, Habibti. So there's been a pattern of escalation out here. Our numbers have only grown, and at this point, anywhere where they're cutting in the park, we want to stop. But they all whip each other up because they get in these little circles with the CHP and the traffic control and the PG&E management. And they just, like, talk a lot of trash and, like, get all macho and just, like, whip each other up into this, like, uh, us against them. Like, we got we to gotta beat these dirtbags, like... They don't know what they're talking about. They'll drop a branch while you're in the drop zone. It might be a little branch, but it's something. And then the next time it's gonna be a bigger branch. They start to get more aggressive and um, they start to get egged on. They drop the tree on the power lines during a really hectic day. Like there's things that are happening here that would be illegal for a private timber company to do on private land. Because again, those of us doing direct action abide by a code of nonviolence. It's the only way. It's the only way, and it's interesting, we're recording this on Martin Luther King's birthday observed. And of course, the, the watchword of his, his uh, action always, direct action, was nonviolence. Mm. Knowing that you can do something and either not doing it or not being able to do it and that being the difference between a place existing or not is, is it's heavy. And uh, I don't want to have, I can't live a lifestyle at this time where I'm unable to drop everything and just go to the front line. That's great. Do you have kids? No. How old are you? 40. You put your body directly on the front line to try to impede um, what many of us regard as, as, as just com a completely wrong uh, thing to be doing in this very late hour of climate change.
de, yo, yo diría, como es de amor a la tierra. Tierra, tierra, tierra. You're listening to Disquiet on the Western Front on kzyx.org. After interviewing Pat and Applesauce last summer, two tree-sitters of a group who had been occupying a tree-sit village near so-called Trinidad for, in many cases, over a year, and in some cases up to two years, I decided I wanted to go up and visit with these people. And they had actually all come down to Humboldt Redwood State Park, where they were working against PG&E's unpermitted removal of all kinds of trees, many of them old growth, to supposedly protect their equipment. I was scheduled to be at a certain GPS point at 6 in the morning, and according to my Google Map app, it was 2 hours and 37 minutes from home. Oh, it's so early, I can't believe I'm driving right now. I left Fort Bragg. 3.30 in the morning, got up at 2.45 a.m. to be able to get out to join with Tree Sitters Local Union 707 as they're trying to stop PG&E's arborists from cutting old growth trees in Humboldt Redwood State Park. Just drove past Usall. Hoping to see a bear. I usually see bears when I drive along in this spot. Driving up past Cottoniva Creek. I can't believe these guys are out here five days a week. A lot of people question about environmentalists and activists. It's like, whoa, dude, get a job. The problem is, is that if we're trying to stop somebody from doing something that's their job, we gotta act like it's our job because they're gonna do it five days a week and do it on weekends as we saw up in the red tail timber harvest plant in Jackson State Forest where they cut some of the biggest trees on a Saturday and Sunday morning. And as we know from a certain massacre up in Oregon, they cut giant dug fur on Christmas day because they figured the activists wouldn't be there. At least they attempted to do it. Oh, just past an owl. It's kind of a small one, too. Those are the really cool owls. Northern Screech Owl. Too big for a pygmy owl. I'm going up partly to offer solidarity because these activists have been working so hard. Some of them have been at it for more than two years, pretty much non-stop. First trying to stop Green Diamond from cutting lots of redwoods in an area that is unseated, stolen land. Nice old music to keep me moving on the road at 4.25 a.m. Climbing another mountain. Three logging trucks at 4.30 in the morning. driving songs ever. Booker T and the MGs. I never realized this song was called Green Onions. I think I've had too much coffee. I guess I should probably stay in my own lane. 
Beijing's movie war Six log trucks, seven log trucks before 5.02 a.m. Just before reaching the GPS point, I pulled over into a entryway into Humboldt Redwood State Park to go to the bathroom and noticed two large, heavily loaded pickup trucks poaching Redwood out of the park. Then I continued on to the GPS point meetup, and there was a van there. I thought for sure this was my person, but I went up and they didn't want to talk to me, and they acted like they didn't know who it was, so I thought maybe it was a drug deal I'd stumbled upon in the dark, hopefully not a meth deal or something, and drove away. Came back a little later, still the same person, drove away, came back a little later, and then there were a bunch of people, and they were the people I was looking for. No, so you're not, you're not Tree Sitters Union. No, that isn't really, that's, that's, that's not really the important thing. That's, I don't know, that's, that's not what I want. No, but it's important for people to actually have some identity as to what somebody is. I mean, we're all kind of non-hierarchical groups. I, yeah, and all, all I really want to yeah, say okay, is that, is that just that we're like, a group of people who are concerned about this. Yeah. Like, there isn't an organization behind us. We are not it came 545 is, like, the closest, like, label or t- or kind of handle there is to this particular thing. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Kind of, but even that, it's like... Yeah. Like, in this area, in the past, Palco literally, like, tried to issue a slap suit against forest defenders because people were saying the word a lot. An activist named Badger and I walked up a steep long hill in the pre-dawn fog. Gravel crunched under our feet. Occasionally a truck of tree workers would drive by, but Badger did not seem concerned. We had some people come up from the SF gate. uh, Can you point out a redwood? And so I said, that's a redwood. A little bit later, is that a redwood? No, that's a hemlock. Pretty much like right above the redwoods out here. You can drive like two miles, and it all of a sudden it just there's like a wall of redwoods. But they're still old growth, or just large second growth. Um, when you get a little further in, like like you get into places, it's more classic park, like old growth groves with names and like forests that were never logged and stuff, and it's like a lot of old growth redwoods. But where the power lines are going through is primarily jug fir, mixed coniferous. Up here, yeah. I mean, the language is like difficult about where's the park and where we're defending and stuff because it's like the area of the park that we're defending. There's like so many power lines going through so many places in the park that we just haven't even like seen. And we're hoping that, like, all right, all right. If you're recording, we gotta walk a little slower. But okay. Yeah. It's just kind of like kind of extra breath. It's like a long walk, you know, not a sprint. Um, can't feel like panting on the radio. <laughs> Makes it sound uh, very radio verite. Anyway, um, there are areas on the toll road where the power lines are by old growth redwoods. They're marked in really confusing ways. We believe that, like, we both heard rumors that big trees have been cut down there or that they will be cut. And we hope that, like, 
folks who go, folks who visit that area. In the early well, 1900s, like, loggers came to what is now Humboldt Redwood State like Park to cut down these lofty ancient redwoods for grape stakes and shingles. The founders of the Save the Redwoods League thought that was akin to chopping up a grandfather clock for kindling. From the acquisition of a single grove in 1921, the League has raised millions of dollars to build and expand this park. Today, Humboldt Redwood spans 53,000 acres, an area almost twice the size of San Francisco. About one-third, or 17,000 acres, of the park is old-growth redwood forest, the largest expanse of ancient redwoods left on the planet. We don't know if PG&E intends to, but if they do start cutting those big, any, if they do start cutting big redwoods down in the park, the part of the park that's more heavily visited, we hope other people will try to stop them. Yeah. Like we can't be everywhere and this park is open and accessible to anyone. Yeah. And it's anyone, it, it's anyone's responsibility to protect it. Isn't like making money off of this. They're not taking and selling the logs. What they are doing is avoiding liability. Like they want to remove the risk of falls of branches or trees falling on the lines. But what's going to happen is over the next three years and into the future, these areas of mature closed canopy forest are going to come back as fine fields and brush. And that's happening right next to a road with a lot of heavy truck traffic. The work they're doing is good for one thing, which is like trees or branches falling on power lines, which accounts for a pretty small amount of ignitions. Since the wildfires and, the last few But nothing years they're doing, like what they're PG&E's doing is bad for the overall fire resiliency. Equipment. They have amassed up to $30 billion in wildfire liability and have filed for bankruptcy protection. They have made the decision that it is cheaper for them to do this kind of tree work and to upgrade their equipment. All over the state, they are facing resistance as they target increasingly endangered wildlife habitat and old growth trees. We leave the fog and rise up into the morning sun. We pass a group of tree workers who are chipping up slash left on the ground from last week's operations. Ravens fly by. A mixed flock of chestnut-backed chickadees and dark-eyed juncos flit about through the branches of a large madrone. The forest here is mixed between old Douglas fir, madrone, oaks. Badger points out a giant Douglas fir all the branches missing up to about 60, 70 feet on one side and points at a huge conch mushroom and a garicon. Larisiformis aficionalis. It is endangered because it only grows on old growth trees. In laboratory settings, its extracts have been shown to be active against pox family viruses. HSV1, HSV2, influenza A, influenza B, and mycobacterium tuberculosis. So yeah, back in October when we were first out here, we were mainly looking at like a handful of old growth trees. And as we looked at those and walked around and saw like where there were surveyors, we just found more and more like remnant old growth trees. And these have like this is an area that has previously been logged in most, like, mostly. So, like, these are all trees that have survived, like, the first round of, like, totally lawless logging. And they've survived everything since then. And, like, this this is supposed to be a state park. And these this is supposed to be protected forever. And they're coming to cut trees 
with habitat that could like trees that are in endangered species habitat. We've seen Pacific fishers here. We hear Northern spotted owls are documented here. Um, some of the trees that they're actually trying to cut have cavities like suitable that would be potential spotted owl nest habitat, both on trees that are cut and trees that folks out here have climbed. We've seen, we've found um, Sonoma tree vole nests, which are the spotted owl's favorite prey in a lot of areas, they're protected too. Here in a state park, that's what they're cutting. And right now where it's getting close, the federal official start of spotted owl nesting season is coming up on February 1st. And we hope that that's gonna like matter on account of like this being a state park and this whole area is a refuge for Northern spotted owls. We're not sure what's gonna happen then or if they're, if they're gonna be able to keep working or not. Another activist slides out from behind a tree and exchanges words with Badger. They apparently are monitoring stuff that's going on on a ridge across the valley. Everybody keeps track of everybody else using two-way radios. And up the Matoll Road, tree workers are doing some really dangerous stuff. But here we are, it's pretty peaceful. It's 7.30 a.m. and we stop for a snack. Then follow the power lines downhill next to a line of tall fir and stately spreading oaks. We find an activist who goes by the name of Slug reclining in the sun, whittling on a stick. Oh, hello. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Kind of a relaxing spot to be sitting. Yeah, it is now. It is now because the workers are in a different part of the forest. Have you been around this area for a long time? I mean, I've lived in Humboldt County for half my life. I've been part of the defense of this region for 20 years or so. How long have you been fighting against this PG&E operation? Well, we've been resisting what PG&E is doing out here in the park since October. We, we grew concerned because so many large trees were being marked, um, and this was last spring and summer. So when they finally moved in in the fall, it wasn't a surprise, but the level of destruction and the pace at which they were moving, the amount of workers, all of that was kind of shocking and uh, above and beyond what we expected to happen. Mm -hmm. it, it feels like in a way you're fighting a hard battle because with California's fear of wildfires that there's somewhat of social license for pg &E to do this and most people don't understand what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So why is this a problem? Well, I would say that it's a, it's a problem across the West where companies and government agencies are being given free reign to uh, destroy sensitive habitats if they say that the project is for um, fire safety. So in that regard, it's very common. It's happening a lot. But in this particular case, uh, PG&E, to me, what PG&E is doing is they're protecting their infrastructure. They're modifying the environment to protect their power lines instead of modifying the power lines to protect the environment. Mm -hmm. And we know that they have the full capability of modifying the power lines, upgrading the technology. What they're doing is not reducing the fire hazard out here. In fact, what we've seen is fields of cut up branches mixed with logs that are all going to get left behind and small bushes and trees growing up underneath the power lines that are highly flammable. And we see that the ground is being exposed to sunlight um, that's drying it out and also increasing the amount of underbrush that's going to regrow. I, I believe that many of the workers truly believe that they are reducing fire hazards, but I think some people in an office somewhere have a much more cynical view of what's happening and are 
saving money by doing this and they're charging their ratepayers for the overall expense of this project of which PG&E makes 10% straight into their pocket. Mm -hmm. What is your philosophy on <clears throat> technology versus environment overall? Well, if we can't modify our technology to protect the environment, then we are killing ourselves because we all rely on the environment to exist. If we're really advancing as a species, coming up with better ways of living, better technology, I want to see that here. I'm not seeing that here. I'm seeing 1800s technology. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing power lines with no insulation, no circuit breakers. Yeah, I look at these these power poles and the transformers and the insulators on it. It's it's quite minimal compared to even the dirt road I live on, which has which is a private road. Yeah, you should see some of them right downhill from here. There's power pole thirty and thirty two are two of the worst, where they're almost all the way chewed through by by animal. Like literally, they're just like they look like a beaver's been at them. Mm -hmm. They look like a five foot tall beaver's been at them. And I'm seeing that the workers are not being instructed to prioritize the most flammable areas. They're going after really big trees, and which we know the biggest trees are the most fire resistant, especially in this case where the canopy on some of these trees doesn't start for 80 or 100 feet. It's a lot of Douglas fir. It's also a lot of tan oak and madrone, bay laurel, white oaks and black oaks. It's a very diverse area. It's, uh, it's underappreciated. It's, it comprises a very large part of Humboldt Redwood State Park, and this forest extends further into the Matol watershed. When you take into account the park and the old growth in the park, the old growth on Rainbow Ridge, and in the upper north fork of the Matol, this area is kind of a, it's a concentration of ancient forest habitat, endangered species habitat, and just mature forest habitat. It's not necessarily all growth. A lot of it is late seral, but we see that the animals are using this area. We see that these trees are gonna be old growth, like within our lifetimes or the next generation. And we know that in most places in this country, forests this old don't exist anymore. And we can't let the park be violated like this. I mean, this is stolen land and the park, you know, is occupying that stolen land. But at the same time, the idea of the park is to protect the environment. And if that most basic protection isn't being granted, then what truly ever will be protected? What is protection? When I first came out to do forest defense, I was a teenager and uh, didn't know a whole lot about how it all tied together, but I knew that I loved the forest and I felt really good in the forest and didn't want to see it getting chopped down. And as time has gone on, I've learned a lot more. Um, part of that is through researching industrial logging operations and trying to understand what species are afforded protections and what aren't. And when you go down that rabbit hole, you start to learn a lot about how it's all linked together because these big trees are homes. Having spent a lot of time in trees, living in trees and living in the forest, I've seen the interactions that the animals have. It's not theoretical to me. I see that certain woodpeckers are building caves and digging out cavities in the trees and that other animals then move into them when those woodpeckers are gone. And the biggest woodpeckers need the biggest trees and a lot of large animals live in those caves. That's just one of like so many interactions out in the woods. Another is 
you see when you're up in the canopy, you see these little swarms of birds come through, little tiny birds. They come through and they're picking off the lichen. They're like picking off scales of bark, looking for tiny insects underneath there. And if you don't spend a lot of time in the trees, it kind of looks more static. It looks a little bit like nothing's happening and it's kind of stationary and quiet. But if you see the, the cycles and the waves of critters that come through based on the seasons, it's, you see what a dynamic situation it is. The day stayed peaceful, but as we sat there looking out over the emerald ridges of so-called Humboldt County, Badger's two-way radio kept crackling, with information coming from the other activists about the dangerous tree work that was going on at the moment and how branches were falling towards activists, which seemed to be an almost daily occurrence. And Slug, who, despite their forest name, was by no means slow, recounted a lot of what had happened in the preceding weeks. Yeah. So there's been a pattern of escalation out here uh, by the PG&E workers where when they show up, they're usually confused but very insistent upon working and are somewhat dangerous but not necessarily malicious. But then pretty soon after, they start to get more aggressive and um, they start to get egged on and then they make a big mistake. They do something really dangerous or they get caught in the middle of a really dangerous maneuver. They get shut down for a little while and some of them don't come back. Um, but like, for example, they dropped the tree on the power lines during a really hectic day and that company didn't come back for a week. Um, and then and then all of a sudden, because they get a big talking to and it shows up on someone's radar, they're all really chill for a few days. And then little by little, they'll chuck a branch here or something like that they'll 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 drop a branch while you're in the drop zone it might be a little branch but it's something and then the next time it's going to be a bigger branch and then they're going to start trying to trick people and then really dangerous stuff starts happening again it's like this crescendo to point out that one of the main tactics of direct action is to place yourself right in the middle of what's going on what you want to stop worldwide people do this in tiananmen square the famous picture of the man standing in front of a tank in occupied Palestine, activists who stand in front of heavy machinery. For instance, Rachel Corey, who died in 2003, age 23, in Rafa in the Gaza Strip, crushed to death by an Israeli armored bulldozer. A bulldozer in the process of demolishing Palestinian homes. Here, these activists are placing themselves in the drop zone, hoping that the tree workers' humanity is going to stop them from dropping a large branch on the activists below. One PG&E supervisor in particular seems to whip up the workers into a dangerous frenzy. He drives by us going up the hill. The activists call him Dennis, but I guess that's not his real name. I want to meet this Dennis guy, but I don't get the chance. Anybody who says, when I'm like, yo, these workers are putting us in danger, and they're like, well, you could just leave and let us get the work done, that, like... I either have to disengage or I'm probably going to yell at that person. Because <laughs> I'm like, you're basically like threatening. That's basically a threat. If you don't, you might not even perceive it as one, but it is a threat. It's like move or you're going to get injured or possibly killed. That's a fucking threat. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. This is Bear River Band territory? Yeah, it's Mittal Ancestral Territory. And they're represented right now by the Bear River Band. We're here defending and living on the territory of... Bear River and Matol and Sinkion people, and I'm a settler here, as are many of my comrades. I ran out of time and needed to drive back south to Mendocino County, walked down the hill, didn't see anybody, 
just a few woodpeckers, a small group of young male deer. However, at the gate at the bottom of Pole Line Road, I ran into a highway patrol and then another highway patrol who were going up to see what was going on. And it just occurred to me that the amount of money that's spent to keep the public from having their say is really kind of disgusting. You are listening to Disquiet on the Western Front, Voices of the Forest Resistance. It is now a half hour past midnight on kzyx.org. I'm Chaz Swimmer, speaking to you from the unceded land of the northern Pomo and coast Yuki. And I will be right back after a little musical interlude with a group called Dump Ham, a queer core pop punk band with a song called Judy Berry Almost Died for Our Sins. Disquiet on the Western Front, because the modern dissonance is deafening. KZYX, listener-supported public radio. This is Chad Swimmer. I would like you to open your ears to a person who I first met less than a year ago, Michael Hunter, the tribal chairman of the Coyote Valley Band of Pomo, who has become an incredible leader in this movement. Feel him like a Feel him like a nanichia, feel him like a slachia, feel him like a sepioka. Michael Hunter, tribal chairman of the Coyote Valley Band of Pomo Indian, accompanied by an enthusiastic chorus of canines, performing a few days ago out at the top of Road 409 in Casper on the first of a series of walks he is leading. He wants to show you what's happening in his Pomo homelands. Please take a day out of your busy schedule and join him and me in the Redwoods. The next will be Sunday, February 6th, then Sunday, February 27th, and Monday, February 28th. Please tell your friends this is a very powerful event. 11 a.m. We're meeting at the Jug Handle State Reserve parking lot, or if it's too crowded across the street on the grass parking area at the Jug Handle Farms. Then at 11.30, we drive up to see forest management in Jackson State and then visit the Gemini Tree. And now we're going to hear from Jaime Boggs of the Robinson Rancheria, Citizens Business Council, member at large. He spoke and sang at the same event last Sunday with Michael Hunter. Unfortunately, the first couple sentences are missing. Continuously fight to keep our water clean. We continuously fight for water resources. We continuously fight for this young man, for these beautiful young ladies, the seventh generation. They're here on this earth today. 
And we have to remember that the prophecy of Wovoka, one man in the west, the prophecy of Black Elk, also on the east side, talked to each other spiritually. And they were given the gift from God that said, Creator, Wahadika, whatever you want to call your higher power, that at that beginning, in that time, they would they would pass the message to the seventh generation about the seventh generation to keep the land clean, keep the air clean, make sure the water was good, to make sure all traditional and cultural values would remain on the earth from the first people because they would have that. Eventually, and we're at that time frame, the seventh generation is standing here today. Whoa. I meet my little friend here, Kayan, and these young ladies here, and I bring them up here out of respect for my creator, for our ancestors, to understand that we're giving. We're only caretakers, but we have to do the best that we can. And I see that sign that says we're on stolen Pomo land. Yes, we are. Yes, that's the truth. That's where we've come from. But we're still here. And we're still fighting. We're fighting for our natural resources in this lifetime. We're only here for a short time. We're leaving this behind for young people like this so that they can live and be free. Our forefathers all fought for that, for the freedom of oneself. So we have to remember those things. The songs, the traditions, the values have been passed down from generation to generation. We're at the seventh generation. And so it's an honor for me to sing a song here today about these, about these beautiful forests, about the water. And that's what these songs talk about.
Jaime Boggs of the Robinson Rancheria. You are listening to Disquiet on the Western Front on KZYX 90.7 Volunteer-Powered Community Radio. I'd like to tell you about a couple shows coming up. Tomorrow morning, if you're up at 9 a.m., is Fortnite Radio with Joy LeClaire, Friday, January 28th. Host Joy LeClaire talks with Kahinda Andrews, Birmingham City University Professor of Black Studies and Director of its Center for Critical Social Research. He discusses his work as founder and chair of the Harambee Organization of Black Unity and Make It Plain, as well as his latest book, New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World. That's Forthright Radio, and it's new time, Friday morning at 9 a.m. here on KZYX and Z. I'd also like to mention the Friday evening at 7 p.m. time slot, which tomorrow is Pride Radio Mendocino with Corporal Sin and Terry, an hour of news and music from Mendocino County's LGBTQIA community. That's Pride Radio Mendocino on the second and fourth Fridays at 7 p.m. On the first Friday of the month is Pride Nation 101. I will be there with my friend Roland Medina, and this time we're going to be talking about a portrait of queer in Mendocino County and also giving a lot of information on services and foster care and how the LGBTQ community really needs more people who would like to foster young people. And in that same time slot is a show on the third Friday from Mendocino High School students that has nothing to do with queer, but has everything to do with high schoolers having fun with radio equipment and making some good programming. And months that have five Fridays, the next one will be April. On April 29th, we have Wild Women, an intersectional feminist broadcast focused on contemporary and historical issues that specifically impact the lives of women, hosted by... Alicia Bales, and Lux Karpov. The first episode, which was last New Year's Eve, was extremely powerful. I highly recommend this show. We are going to go to some excerpts of an interview with Silver Fox, a direct activist who has been defending the forest here on the Mendocino Coast. We are going to start with a song that Silver Fox recommended, which, ironically, was a song that my grandmother, Sally, who passed away in 2011 at 99 years old, told me that her grandmother used to sing to her when she was a child. This is called Woodsman's Bear That Tree. It is one of the first known environmental songs in English. It was written in 1837 by George P. Morris. Woodsman's Bear That Tree. i 
Silver Fox, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you so much, Chad. Good to be here. Can you tell us how you got into forest activism? I've been here off and on for 21 years, as much off as on, because I found that I wasn't quite ready to live in the country. I needed to keep going back to the city for the things I enjoy, live music and, and theater and films, because I used to teach films, so on and so forth. And ultimately, I... I realized that I couldn't live in a city anymore, and I came back in 2015 and have pretty much been here. And so while being here, among many things I've undertaken to do, was uh, recultivating a, a wonderful friendship with a dear friend of mine past now, Ruth Weiss, who was one of the original beat poets, and uh, she was a joy. I mean, we, we were dear heart friends and um, had many adventures together, and she had a spirit like no other. And it, it finally transpired that along with Anna-Marie Stenberg, who's, who's well-known, of course, doing the direct action here that I'm sure all of you have heard about, um, I became a co-trustee of Ruth's estate. And among the several things we had to determine was the disposition of her archive and uh, several other matters, but particularly the disposition of her property, which is in Albion. And it's a remarkable place because it had these wonderful areas of very important arboreal uh, manifestations, old-growth redwood, pygmy, second-growth. And what Ruth always maintained, the reason she was drawn to that place was because of the trees. And what she always maintained was, I protect the trees, the trees protect me which for me has been a watchword of, the, of my whole involvement with uh, what we've been doing in Jackson State. Ruth also wrote a wonderful haiku that we had um, laser cut into a piece of wood, which now abides on that same property. And it's called The Score of the Trees. And the three lines read, The score of the trees, choir to our survival, the soft voice heeded. And... I certainly have heeded that voice in the work I've been doing here, and we're lending our voices to help that score of the trees be heard. But what we have um, done, Anna-Marie and I, actually during this time of direct action is uh, connected with the Mendocino Land Trust. And we're able to, do, to donate Ruth's property to the Land Trust with this proviso that a perpetual conservation easement be placed on the old growth areas, pygmy areas, and several others, no matter what the disposition of the property, whether they retain it or sell it for their purposes, their, their different uh, activities, that those easements be in place. And with uh, a lot of good help in trying to make the language precise, we were able to get that before we made the donation. And so Anna-Marie and I were involved with saving trees on Ruth's property. And then when you, Chad, and the Mendocino Trail Stewards alerted so many of us to what was going down in Jackson State. Anna Marie, because of her long-standing activist background in forest actions and others, asked me, you know, would you participate? And this was an action she called on the, on the 12th of April, it was a Monday, only days after Greasy Pete did his tree sit. And uh, what Anna Marie was able, through the grapevine to assemble, were 43 people blocking Road 500 in the Casper 500 THP, which was an extraordinary show. And so ever since that time, I have been involved with this forest action, nonviolent direct action, with the view of 
calling for a moratorium on the people's forest. And we have had success since the 16th of June in that reference Casper 500. No logging has taken place since that time after a week of direct action in that timber harvest plan. Had you done any direct action before that? I hadn't really done that. I'm old enough to have been involved in the anti-war movement in the late 60s and early 70s. I had a very low draft number, so obviously there was an imperative for me to take some sort of uh, actions. I participated in anti-war demonstrations. I was particularly adept at die-ins. Uh, the best die-in I ever participated was at Boston University in early 1970, when during the middle of a basketball game, we all went and died in. and. Uh, it was very dramatic, and I I really took my cue from a, a wonderful group called the Living Theater, and uh, they took so, uh, things literally uh, in their actions. And Antonin Artaud, who who wrote uh, uh, many wonderful writings about the theater and the, th the theater and its double, talked about the plague, and and the idea of the plague, and and it was more of a theoretical approach, but the Living Theater took it. Literally, so I saw them do this. I'm going, that's for me, and so I brought a particularly plague-ridden view of dying in in different actions, and I participated in anti-war demonstrations during the during the lead up to Iraq, uh, the Iraq War, and others, but nothing like this, where you put your body directly on the front line to try to impede um, what many of us regard as 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 just com a completely wrong. Uh, thing to be doing in this very late hour of climate change. This is interesting to me to hear this because my own direct activism years ago during the war in the Gulf was in guerrilla theater in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize that my tactics came straight from you, that we did mock executions and die-ins <laughs> in malls in oh, Hadley, Massachusetts. Hadley, yes, yeah. And of course, you know, there's there's so much where theater has been involved in, in what they call agitprop theater. And of course, uh, we were talking earlier about Cesar Chavez and the farm workers. Well, they, uh, Luis Valdez, who became a very celebrated playwright, known to many, perhaps his musical Zoot Suit is his best known work. He was writing pieces called actos that they were doing out in the fields. And they would have, you know, on the back of a flatbed truck, and they'd been doing this guerrilla theater for the workers and, and others to get the message out. And uh, so there's a long tradition of this kind of activities. So soon after that April 12th morning, early morning, you and Anna Marie locked yourself to a gate. And there were a few different gates that were <laughs> blocked at Casper 500. Is that the first time you'd done anything like this? Well, it's so interesting you, you mentioned that because it wasn't right after it was almost two months after oh. because the 12th of april was a monday we uh, uh several of us on the first of may may day went to 500 and just nobody nobody from california was there but just to, to make a stand but it really wasn't until the beginning of june that this really heated up and um on the 9th of june uh there were five of us myself and, and Anna Marie as well uh, up Highway 20, about eight miles up, because we pretty much assumed, uh, because it had been stated that it was going to commence, that logging would uh, uh, happen. And we were up, uh, there, that's the time that uh, there was this um, uh, van <laughs> that was blocking uh, one of the logging roads. And we were just 
five of us were, were up there. I was up the road a piece. I forget the, I think it was, is it 408? Is it 408 <clears throat> that, that uh, comes up from Little Lake Road? Uh, it was where that converges with uh, Highway 20. And I wasn't down at Highway 20, but apparently the highway patrol showed up, sheriffs showed up, Cal Fire showed up. But they realized, uh, because that particular road of that logging road of ingress that uh, the loggers wanted to use was blocked, uh, and they didn't know it till they found out. <clears throat> I never saw uh, trucks so angry. These were angry trucks because they were <laughs> speeding by. There was a Cal Fire truck that speeded by and to check it out, and then it came back looking very angry. Uh, really, it's like its grill was snarling. And then uh, a, log, a logging truck as well, I think, uh, I think it might have been before that. Likewise, that was the day, the 9th of June. And so two days after that, I believe that was a Wednesday, so Friday, I believe it was the 11th of June, if my memory serves me, this is the first time that Anna Marie and I locked ourselves not to the gate, uh -huh. but in, never to the gate, but in front of the gate in a device called the bear. And so by locking ourselves in, you know, we can't be moved by law. Uh, they have to get a laser cutter or something to cut us out of it. So there was Anna Marie and myself and several others in support. And by the way, I do want to mention that not everyone who's turned out is engaged in direct action, but a number of people have shown up to give us support, which is always welcome. And so on that day, it was a very interesting uh, a series because I, I think we were out there, gosh, was it 4.30? Uh, anyway, yeah, I guess it was. And so, boy, did we get there just in time because behind us at this gate, and I guess it was the top of 500. You know, sometimes these numbers, by the way, I just want to say, we you mentioned we've been locked in front of various gates. We have talked for some time about putting together a sort of a tour of the different gates that we've been locked in front of. Uh, might be of interest to some. That was the one on the 11th of uh, June, and we got there just in time, and we had also been joined, blessedly, by Frank Hartzell, who was able to be there, because it was just Anna Marie and myself and him. So he was able to document when, from behind us, these two big logging trucks roared up. We just saw the headlights. And uh, th these were loggers, you know, not Calfa. And uh, obviously they were very upset. All, you, you mentioned the economy. What is the, what is the nature of the future economy for Mendocino? And the fact that more and more it is recreation, it is tourism. And beyond that, this can be a model for promoting the healing of such a place. And, you know, it's so rich in its biodiversity. It's so rich in the immemorial stewardship of Pomo. And one of the signs that we've always brought to our, dem our uh, either demonstrations or actions is listen to the, sp listen to the Pomo. Mm -hmm. They have so much to impart about the superintending of these lands because of their long immemorial experience. And the cultural side, there's so much that could be brought to this in the nature of healing work that also has to do with the economy. And cannot some of the people involved with cutting these trees be involved in the remediation and the healing of these lands? Yes. I, I should mention, though, that it runs the gamut here of everyone involved, and I would like to speak a little bit about the, the disparate, remarkable, incredible uh, people involved with the coalition. It's like age 6 to 80. Mm -hmm. it's, it's extraordinary. 
Again, I encourage you to go to disquietmedia.blue where you can listen to this whole interview and hear Silver Fox talk about more interesting actions, mountain lions, mercenaries, and other fun things. At the last minute, forest defender and queer rights activist Olive sent me a very moving submission that we're going to end with. Chad, also I wanted to tell you something else because I had just this intense emotional experience in the woods um, the other day. I just wanted to tell you about it. So I was sitting in a drop zone stopping a climber and a comrade of mine was up the hill in another drop zone and the tree that they were trying to climb where she was actually, we realized recently, has a Sonoma retrieval nest in it. Um, And we realized this because we saw the climber find the nest and heard him talking to other workers about it. And once he noticed it, we could actually see from the ground. So normal retrievals like to live in hollow cavities within larger trees with old growth characteristics. And this is a beautiful like split top tree with a huge cavity, maybe 15 or 20 feet up um, from the base of the tree. And you can actually see from the ground the fresh fir needles in the cavity poking out. And the fir needles are what um, the tree voles eat. And so they'll go collect them and bring them back to their, their den. So if you see fresh needles, you know that there's a vole currently living there. And we noticed this when we were sitting in the drop zone of that tree for hours, stopping the climbers. Those are the moments where you really have lots of time to observe the forest around you. Biologist working for PG&E through a contractor, I think the contractor Stantec, had walked by and so my friend who was in that drop zone was like hey you should come look at this nest tree where there's this vole living and the biologist looked at it left and then later came back and this time there were six biologists and i saw them all get out of their trucks i could see them from the drop zone i was in and they all walked up the hill in single file and they're all wearing their white hard hats and their safety vests they walked up to the nest tree and i was really excited because i thought there was a possibility that maybe they would get that tree unmarked Um, My friend radioed me and told me on on the walkie-talkie that the biologists were looking at the tree and that the arborists had given them a little sample from the nest and they said there's nothing we can do to protect this. This tree, this this species isn't listed under the Endangered Species Act and we know that Sonoma red tree voles aren't listed but they are an indicator species for old growth forests and they are critical prey for the listed northern spotted owl. The biologist walked back past the drop zone I was in in single file and I was watching them leave and I had this just really intense emotional moment realizing that all those people with their all the money that they have, the degrees they have, they're hired by this corporation and it's their job to protect the wildlife trees and to survey for things like this. All of the power that they have and everything that's behind them, they don't have the power to protect that tree. But us and a couple of our friends have been protecting that tree for weeks, if not months, and that tree's still standing right now because we've been there every day. And we don't have a lot of money, we don't have degrees, but we have the power to just protect things in the moment that we're there. Often a complaint levied at frontline activists using direct action is why don't you get a job, get a degree, work with a nonprofit, work with a government agency, and work from the inside to change these laws. But the laws aren't potent and they're not enforced. And the true power we have is just in putting our bodies on the line. And there's moments like that that, like, really remind me of that. So I just wanted to share that with you. That was forest defender and queer rights activist Olive from so-called Humboldt Redwood State Park. Again, thank you for spending the past hour with myself and all the people who have given their words of wisdom and their opinions and their experiences here on Disquiet on the Western Front. Voices of the Forest Resistance, Conversations to Cool a Planet on Fire, 
on KZYX, listener-powered community radio. If you want to share this show with somebody, go to kzoax.org at the Jukebox tab. You can find this and all the other great programming put on by mostly entirely volunteers. And you can find a link to the full interview with Silver Fox at disquietmedia.blue, where you can also find an email address to email me and tell me what you liked or did not like about this show. Thank you. I am yours truly. Chad Swimmer. Here we go with Phil Harris from 1941. There is a tree grows near our house. It's been there quite some time. Now the tree is a slippery elm tree in awful hard decline. But when my wife gets after me in that tree, I always roost. Why, I can go right up it just like a healthy squirrel. I don't never need no boost. But the other day, a woodman came round to chop my refuse down. Kept mumbling something about wanting to split it into kindling wood and then spread it around the town. I said to him, I said, uh, look here, my friend, hold on, desist, whoa, stop. Put down that forest razor. Chop not a single chop. Woodman, woodman, spare that tree, touch not a single bough. Three years it has protected me, and I'll protect it now. And to all a good night. Love you, Mom. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.